Philippe the I'm I'm now gonna put that in. <laughs> that, that sounded like Italian. Uh, no, I can't do French. Uh, well, we're gonna yeah, be in Italy a little bit in this episode, but we'll get into it. Uh-huh. Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale. Where we pass judgment, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France, from Napoleon to nope, from Clovis to Napoleon the Third. Do you want me to stuff up mine as well to make you feel better? No, I thought you might though, because you like took a big swig of uh, coffee yeah. while I was yeah. speaking, and then I was like, "Cheers!" I drink that. Oh, now I'll do my part. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme, and who will be sent to the guillotine? Jean-Marie Ben Clark, and I'm Eliza Summers. And mm. it is late slash early, so let's crack yes. on. <laughs> yes. So this is a very anticipated episode by people. Philip the Fourth is one of the names that people said when, at, at like the very start of the podcast, we were like, "Who are you most excited to see?" And a lot of people said Philip the Fourth, um, nice, or uh, Philip the Fair, as he is known as well. I have heard of him, but I just yeah. don't know anything about him because I purposely do not search anything French. Anytime I get like stumble across something French history, I'm like, shit! <laughs> I had to stop reading a historical book just because it started going into about France, and I was like, nope, 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 nope. See, I, I, I'd forgive you if it's, like, far enough ahead and, like, we're not going to do it for, like, another year or another, like, five years. Nah, we're going to do this. Because then, by then you'd, you'd have forgotten. But um, no. but I am looking forward to seeing what happens when we get to parts of French history that you have previously done or have previously known about and how much you've managed to forget. Just, you know, Sun King, <laughs> Marie Antoinette, Napoleon. Well, we're getting, we're edging, we're starting to edge closer to the Hundred Years' War. Um, oh, yeah, entering... closer to the Charles. Yeah, oh, so we're no. entering the century that I guess more people, especially English people, know about <laughs> from French history. But it's not Philip's I'll fault. Wait. I'll say yeah. that now. <laughs> Philip didn't do it. Um, okay, so, oh, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe he did. I don't know. We'll maybe reassess that. But... Uh, yeah, maybe it's everyone's fault. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, Philip. He was born during the reign of Louis the Ninth, or Saint Louis, who was this great pious king uh, mm. that we thought was mixed. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> at the time of Philip's birth, he was the third in line to the throne. So his father was first, his older brother was second, and then he was third. So he was the Prince Harry of... He was the spare. (laughs) So when he was two years old, in 1270, his parents left. They left him and his three brothers to join his grandfather on the Eighth Crusade, uh, a fateful expedition, which we've covered in some detail now, which claimed not only the life of Louis IX uh, from dysentery and scurvy, but also of several other members of the the royal family, (laughs) including Philip's pregnant mother, Isabella of Aragon, uh, who fell off a horse and died as a result of a premature labor. Um, 
So a couple years after returning from crusade, Philip's father, now Philip III, married Mary of Brabant in 1274. So now Philip's got a stepmother and she became a target of suspicion when Philip IV's elder brother, Louis, died the following year. Ah, yeah. So Louis is now the heir. And as the- Philip is now the heir. Sorry. So Philip is now the heir and (laughs) he thus- I'm not doing a I'm not I'm not doing a German accent. So so Philip is now the heir, um, and he becomes the main rallying point for the court faction that opposes the new queen, uh, which included his grandmother Margaret of Provence, as well as Philip mm. III's chief advisor Pierre de La Brosse. Um, do you remember what happened to La Brosse, though? Mm. The like chief advisor guy killed, exiled committed treason or something um two of the three (laughs) so so uh he well he got basically pretty much framed for treason by mary f brabant's faction a bunch of incriminating letters uh were shown to the king and then he got oh yeah he got hanged uh in the end but yeah so that's that's that uh but there wasn't too much evidence of actual animosity between Philip and Mary, the stepmother. Mm. Um, It was more just like him as a very young child being sort of used uh, by the faction. The other peoples. Yeah. Yeah. But Philip starts to get more clever as as he grows older. So moving into his teen years, he became defined in opposition to his brother, Charles of Valois, who was his, his last surviving full sibling. So yeah, it, it became very clear as these brothers grew up that they had completely opposite characters uh, and like different values. In Philip III's episode, we saw this difference in their reaction to their father's quest to invade Aragon in a uh, supposed yeah, yeah. crusade in reaction to King Pedro III trying to claim the Sicilian throne from their uncle, Charles of Anjou. So you've got uh, Charles yeah. of Anjou and Charles of Valois. They're sort of made in the same image, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're both like the second son who's venturing forth to conquer a new kingdom. Charles has uh, conquered yeah. Sicily. And Charles of Valois has high hopes of getting Aragon. Yeah. So yeah, Charles is like a strapping, cocksure young lad, 14 yeah. years old and already prepared to go to war and claim Aragon for himself in a conquest of arms. I'm guessing Philip's like, this is stupid. Are yeah. you doing this? Uh, Philip is a bit older. He's 16. Uh, he's very shrewd and cautious by nature. And he's also a gifted intellectual. He took full advantage of the skilled tutors that were brought in to educate him, uh, which included nice. some of the greatest minds of medieval France. And this included Guillaume Dequis, who was one of his father's chief advisors. So who uh, educated him on, you know, how to run a country, which it turns out is helpful and is a thing that I yes. don't understand why more kings don't get. Um, well, more people these days don't get politicians. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Rishi Sunak needs someone to educate him on how to uh, do his seatbelt because he there was, a recent, there was a scandal that just popped up on Instagram where mm. he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. But anyway, that's current affairs. Um, <laughs> but, or it be current affairs two weeks ago by the time this comes out. But... So probably on the advice of his smart mentors, uh, who he listened to yeah. a lot more than his father and brother, Philip opposed the adventure into Aragon. Um, 
you know, it was financially ruinous, it made a mockery of the idea of crusading, and it was extremely unpopular among the people of France who were pretty sick of crusades at this point, because so many of them have failed and people are failing to see how it benefits their lives in any way. Yeah, any of them really successful? Yeah, well, this one certainly isn't. So uh, so <laughs> Philip IV gets to say, I told you so, uh, when the expedition fails miserably, the Allied fleet is defeated at Las Flamingas, the uh, French army was starved into retreat and destroyed in ambush, the crown was plunged oh, into yeah. debt, and Charles of Valois returned home with the body of their dead father, Philip III, who had died of dysentery in Perigord on the 5th of October, 1285. And that is where we left off in Philip III's episode. Of course, we've delved into a bit of the future with uh, Joan of Navarre, but we've really only done it from her angle of history. Mm -hmm. So now let's get into uh, Philip IV's. So Philip III, now Philip IV, was king at the age of 17, although he technically already been a king for about a year uh, because he was married to Joan, and Joan was the Queen of Navarre. Listen to last episode for more on that. Um, I'll probably only mention Joan again like once or twice this episode because we've already pretty much covered her, and she's not relevant to most of the main stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. So, Joan. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> She mm-hmm. just starts having babies, basically, and she goes off and does that. So, obviously, the first order of business for Philip was getting the royal budget back on track after yes. that absolute plonker of a war. Disaster. So, Philip IV, he was actually very smart. He he immediately uh, negotiated a truce so that he could withdraw the French troops out of uh, Spain and get them Good. back home, the remaining ones at least. Um, uh, so he did, yeah, he did his best to conclude the war with Aragon. It took nearly six years to finally do so. Mm. In the meantime, his brother Charles of Valois continued to fight the war, uh, with the Ugh. king of Aragon, Alfonso III, who, by the way, is their, their first cousin since their mother was a princess of uh. Aragon. They were mainly fighting over who should rule Sicily, either the royal family of Aragon or the French house of Anjou, their, their cousins. Yeah. And this conflict over Sicily will continue for centuries. Uh, But Philip is determined not to repeat his father's mistakes and to be involved as little as possible. (laughs) Good. Put France first, basically. So we'll we'll probably... As you should do as a king. Yeah. So we'll probably catch up with the Aragon-Sicily situation when future kings get involved in it. But for now, let's move forward into the 1290s when Philip has made peace on the Spanish border and is now ready to move north to deal with the pesky English and pesky Flanders who are always <laughs> causing trouble. Stupid, stupid Flanders. So at the start of Philip the Fourth reign, the French and the English had been on relatively good terms. They'd actually been at peace for about 30 years, which is Woo! a new record. <laughs> yeah. So King Edward I, Edward Longshanks, uh, swore homage mm. to Philip for his lands in Aquitaine and Gascony in, south, in the southwest of France, as is the custom. Uh, but then in 1294, Edward I suddenly withdrew his homage uh, <gasps> when the two kings had a bit of a tiff. Uh, so, Over what? Well, Philip accused the English of raiding his ports, um, or at least supporting people who were raiding his ports, um, even though the French were doing the same thing. Um, and uh, he ended up seizing some of Edward's castle in, castles in Gascony uh, to the south of Aquitaine. Mm. In retaliation, Edward stoked the fires of rebellion among other French vassals, one of whom was Guy of Dompierre, the Count of Flanders, uh, aka the son of Margaret the Black. 
who we did a Patreon episode about. Yes. So Guy was annoyed that Philip had banned him from marrying one of his daughters to the King of England's son, because Philip didn't want that alliance to happen for obvious reasons. But in trying to block this alliance, Philip just like made them both his enemies. So they were kind of allied anyway. So it was like, Um, (laughs) so this war with the English went on for years, but neither side made serious gains. It was a bit of a, it wasn't like a hot war. It wasn't a cold war. It was like a lukewarm war. (laughs) (laughs) Like neither side was, was, yeah, neither side was really trying that hard, I don't think. Um, but yeah, the, the newly elected, elected Pope, uh, Boniface VIII, who we're going to hear a lot more of this episode, Ooh, uh, he urges peace so that they can do something more important. Guess what the Pope thinks is more important? Crusade. Yeah. <laughs> Just give up, Pope. So Come you'll on. be pleased to know that Pope Boniface VIII never got his crusade because events intervene. Uh, but after years and years of angry emails, uh, he did finally get France and England to make up and mend their fences. They made a marriage pact in 1299 uh, and then a final peace treaty in 1303. So the marriage pact, uh, Edward I's wife, Eleanor of Castile, has been dead for nine years. Um, and his son, Edward II, is too young to get married which <laughs> shocking that, that, that finally somebody is considered too young to get married. Um, <laughs> so Philip IV's youngest sister, Margaret, becomes Edward I's second wife, and thus the first French princess to be Queen of England. It's taken this long. Ooh. Yeah. Unless you count the wife of Henry the Young King, who is like kind of King of England, uh, and she was yeah. also called Margaret. Um, <laughs> But anyway, mm-hmm. so in addition to this, little Edward II is betrothed to Philip IV's daughter, Isabella. Yes. Um, the double dipping uh, with the marriages. <laughs> and uh, these two, Edward II and Isabella, will grow up to live happily ever after. Nothing bad will ever happen. She's not going to, like, hatch a plot, like a conspiracy with her lover to depose him and then have him accidentally brutally murdered or anything like that's not going to happen and that's not going to end up leading to like the hundred years war is that nothing bad's ever going to happen anyway so france left the war with england on very favorable terms edward the first swore homage for aquitaine again and he was forced to give up all of gascony so that's a that's a new step so this was mainly because edward the first was focusing his efforts trying to subdue the welsh and the scots um, uh, which becomes the, uh, we're history. now in at the time of, of William Wallace, uh, oh, him okay. sort of becoming a problem for the Edwards. <laughs> and uh, Philip IV was more than happy to work with the Scottish rebels to annoy Edward I. Um, <laughs> so we're starting to see the early days of the old alliance between um, France and Scotland against the English, where uh, yeah. Every time France goes to war with England, they sort of alert the Scots and are like, can you attack them now? That'd be great. Um, <laughs> Scots like, yay! Yeah, they're both Me. super keen for, for this sort of deal. Going back to Flanders to resolve that conflict, although it's a little harder to resolve than Philip initially thinks, in 1300, Guy of Dompierre is captured by French, French troops and imprisoned by Philip. So, yay. Mm. He puts one of his own officials in charge of Flanders, just as he's done in Joan's Kingdom of Navarre. And he brings Flanders temporarily into the royal domain, which is pretty Mm. good. Um, Mm. 
Philip even does like a tour of Flanders and and, and he Damn. finds himself being like cheered and celebrated by the population. Oh. When was the last time a king went to Flanders? I believe Louis the Seventh went to Flanders. Uh sorry, Louis the Eighth went to Flanders um oh. to kind of help out Margaret the Black's sister, Joan, because she was struggling. Uh, yeah. I can't remember I'm sure who was the yeah. king between then? Louis the Ninth. I think Louis the Ninth might have gone. Philip the Third, I d- what did Philip the Third even do? Anyway, <laughs> just went to Aragon and died. But I mean, I think most French kings have gone to Flanders because oh, it's, okay, it's cool. not that far away. They do tours of their land quite often. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so so Philip does a tour of Flanders, um, which everyone's cheering him. Guy is like, oh, he's back oh, in gosh. prison. But after the king went to Paris, the Flemish soon grew a bit sick of their French overlords, and in 1302. The French occupiers were massacred uh, in an uprising Ooh. in the capital of Bruges. And uh, this sparked a second Flemish rebellion, this time a popular revolt of the civil militia mm. that proved far more effective than Guy of Dompierre's noble revolt. Um, <laughs> so even well armed mounted French knights couldn't withstand the wrath of this rebellion. Flanders yeah. was a swamp as we know, uh, yeah. which is not great for horses. And it's really good for guerrilla fighting. People, not good people in armour. Exactly. So Philip IV's cousin, Robert II of Artois, led a fully equipped French army into the Battle of Courtrai, also called the Battle of the Golden Spurs, hmm, which, like in which, name. contrary to the uh, probably rather ironic name of the battle, these knights with their golden spurs were humiliatingly crushed by a basically peasant rabble of a Flemish militia. So things weren't do- doing so hot. Uh, the French were mm. utterly humiliated in Flanders. So Philip IV, in response to this, released Guy, with a peace treaty in 1303 to sort of hope that that would pacify Flanders a bit and convince the rebels to return home. But then he followed that by a year later, marching the French troops back into Flanders. So he was like, here you go, I'm making peace. Just kidding. (laughs) I have forgotten. Philip had a little more luck than his cousin. He was in the thick of the fighting at the grueling multi-day battle of Monzon-Pavel, which both the French and the Flemish claimed as a victory. Um, So Uh. the the French managed to get the Flemish to retreat, but they were unable to chase them through the swamp. And the Flemish Mm. captured Philip's Oriflamme banner in the process. Ooh, that's a bit of a loss. Yeah, nonetheless, Philip IV managed to end the war with favourable outcomes for France once again, because Guy conveniently died of old age. Um, and uh, his Ooh. son, Robert III of Flanders, was either unwilling or unable to continue the war, making peace with Philip by handing over the major Flemish cities of Batoon, Douai, and Lille. Mm. I've heard of, like, one of those cities. Lille, yeah. Yeah. Lille, Lille is one of the biggest cities in France, but uh, Batoon and Douai just sound fun. Um, <laughs> so, so Philip returned to France where he celebrated a Thanksgiving mass in the still nearly complete Notre Dame and commissioned a statue of himself on horseback, as you do when you barely win a war. Um, I feel so I would do that. But yeah, Philip has been doing other stuff. Uh, he's been distracted. He's been multitasking, let's say. Nice. He's been simultaneously dealing with matters to the south of France because the King of France and the Pope are not as simpatico as they used to be. Nah. They used 
to be able to bond over their mutual hatred of the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany. But mm-hmm. we're still in the sort of aftermath of the Great Interregnum, the period of like uh... not being they're not being an emperor really. I did misspeak in a previous episode. The Empire didn't not have an emperor for a century. It was only about twenty years. Oh uh, yeah. But the Empire is still in turmoil during Philip the Fourth's reign. There are numerous competing emperors uh who we don't have time to get into because there's there's too mm-hmm. many. And the German and Italian states have become a chaotic mess of Pretty much little principalities ruling themselves, as we've said before. Mm. Around the turn of the 14th century, um, so around 1300, Philip manages to capitalize on this disunity and gobble up some of the empire's lands adjacent to his. Mm. Most notably, the big county of Franche-Comté, which is the region between Burgundy and Switzerland. So that sort of Mm. middle east, middle east, uh, central eastern bit um, next to France. He gobbles that up, and that's still part of France. But the lack of a strong emperor has its downside as well. It changes the balance of power in Europe, meaning that the king of France is the secular ruler that poses the biggest threat to the pope. And this current pope, Boniface VIII, is not playing around. (laughs) So he takes umbrage with Philip for taxing the church in order to fund his war with England and Flanders thus depriving the church of some of the fabulous wealth that it has made it so powerful in the 13th century. Boniface is like, that's my tax. Why are you taking my tax? I'm not happy. So let's get into Boniface because we need to know a bit about him to understand the shit that's about to go down. (laughs) So Boniface VIII rose to the papacy under infamous circumstances. His predecessor, Celestine V, is one of the only popes in history to ever resign Um, in 1294, after his authority in Rome completely gave way and the future Pope Boniface advised him to step down before being immediately elected. (laughs) So Boniface was was elected Pope in Rome, um, and despite Celestine's insistence that he just wanted to go and retire and live humbly, uh, Boniface imprisoned him um, to prevent him from running off and causing trouble. Then after about 10 months of people not knowing where Celestine was, it was announced that Celestine had very conveniently died in prison. Mm. He was about 80 years old, so fair enough. Okay. But uh, yeah, popes, turns out popes are old. Um, (laughs) If you didn't know that. (laughs) Even back then, it was possible. So (laughs) Boniface, he was known for his great intellect, which led him to become skeptical of various parts of church doctrine. While he campaigned for papal supremacy, papal supremacy is his main thing, as we'll learn, um, he also questioned fundamental teachings of the church, allegedly, oh. such as he had he had questions about whether souls were indeed immortal and about the nature of the afterlife, which mm. you, are not things that you ask about, even if you are the Pope. Yeah. So his contemporary, Dante Alighieri, who's alive now... Oh. He, of course, makes a career out of writing about the afterlife. Um, so he was certain that Boniface VIII was destined to go to hell for not believing in it. <laughs> Although for, for Dante, it was uh, more for his corrupt selling of abbeys and bishoprics, the sin uh, of simony. I feel as though Dante is just like tune people hell based on like, he's like, yeah, I don't like you. You're going to hell. Yeah, well, he sends Philip IV to hell as well. So get ready for that. Um, <laughs> so... So Boniface VIII um, is ironically uh, the Pope who canonized Louis IX of France. 
he did that Mm. soon after taking office. Ironic because he also immediately started making moves against France with its whole taxing the clergy thing. Mm. So in 1296, Pope Boniface issues a bull known as Clericis Laicos, which uh, forbids clergy to pay any tax to any lay ruler whatsoever. As you can imagine, this move angered more than just the King of France, and Boniface ended up having to backtrack when neighbouring Italian nobles started making violent threats. Meanwhile, Philip, seeing the Pope starting to stumble a little, he decided to make a a bold move. Take advantage. He had the Bishop of Pamir named Bernard Seyce, who, um... Seyce. So Bernard Seyce. I've only just realised how how funny that name sounds. Um... (laughs) Because it's spelt S-A-I-S-S-E-T. So it looks nice in oh. French, but then you say it and say say. <laughs> so say say was the Bishop of Pamir, and he was also the papal legate. So he was the Pope's representative in France. And Philip had him arrested for treason. <laughs> Ooh. Philip tries him on the charges of heresy, blasphemy, for suggesting that St. Louis was in hell, and for plotting with a foreign ruler the Pope, um, to get Philip's bishops and stuff to dodge their taxes. Because Philip was Mm. like, I get to tax them, they're in my land. Makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense to us, at least. Um, Although I guess we still live in a time where uh, a lot of religious institutions are exempt from tax, and it comes from this. Hmm. Well, these days, it makes sense to exempt them from tax. They're probably not making that much money. Well, are you kidding? The Catholic Church is still making gangbusters. From donations. That's what they want you to... Yeah, but the donations aren't taxed. Too many people go to church. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, they're probably declining, but whatever. So the best part of Philip arresting the papal legate is that he sends a rather sarcastic letter to Pope Boniface VIII, requesting that the Holy Father permit the king, his humble servant, to prosecute the legate. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine Boniface is quite mad. Um, So. In 1302, Boniface issues the next volley of the conflict. He issues another bull. Uh, This time it's called Unam Sanctam. And this is a statement of absolute papal supremacy. So every man, woman, and child on earth uh, is subject to the Pope. And this is necessary for the salvation of humanity. If you don't agree that the Pope is the supreme ruler on earth, above any king, any emperor then you're going to hell. So this is even more extreme than the last bull. Actually, Philip IV, he releases Seise from imprisonment and he backs down completely. Just kidding, he doesn't. Um, Oh, yay! He does release Seise, but it's only so that Philip can focus all of his effort on prosecuting the Pope instead of prosecuting Seise. Yay! So so yeah, Philip receives Unam Sanctum in the mail. Uh, He proceeds to set it on fire and swear revenge. Oh. <laughs> yes! He banishes Seisei to Rome, and he he uses all the, the lawyers that he was using to prosecute Seisei to prosecute the Pope himself. Um, oh my god, I love that. So Philip IV calls a big council, because you always got to call a big council, yes. um, of the clergy, nobility, and bureaucracy of France. And here he accuses the Pope of, quote, Heresy, blasphemy, murder, sodomy, simony, and sorcery. Damn. Which is quite the laundry list. The Pope was also allegedly a glutton due to his failure to fast on the appropriate holy days. Very improper. Disgusting behaviour. And this is my favourite accusation. Yes. He apparently kept a demonic familiar as a pet. Oh, yes! (laughs) So he's got like a little like 
Which cat? cat. Uh, <laughs> honestly, the Pope probably just owned a cat. <laughs> they're like, it's a black cat! Yeah. yeah! So meanwhile, Boniface appropriately reacts to this blatant defamation by drafting a third and final bull. Guess what this bull does? Excommunication. Yeah. So this time it's a bull of excommunication against the king of France. This this would if this passes, it's it would be the first time it passes for two hundred years since the reign of Philip the First, the lusty Philip. Oh, the namesake. Yeah. So we've had a couple kings come close, but never this close to excommunication since Philip the First. But Philip the Fourth was directly opposing the Pope and like defying yeah. his supremacy. So it seems inevitable that he's going to get excommunicated. Yeah. So back at his council, Philip asserted that while the Pope may be above other men in the sense that he is the anointed successor of St. Peter, neither the king nor the Pope was above the law. Ha! And since the Pope was compromised by his own wickedness and corruption, abusing his papal authority in order to continue his nefarious ways without consequence, the law should be used to bring him down. Yes! So we've got to put the Pope on trial. Yes! And to put a man on trial, you've got to arrest him first. So, thus begins a plot to seize the Pope, which is contrived by one of Philip's chief advisors, Guillaume de Nogaret. One of the ways he decided to trap the Pope was by exploiting the precarious political situation in Rome itself. Because Romans are always angry about something. (laughs) So... (laughs) So in this period, the uh, two main families that dominate Roman politics are the Colonna and the Orsini. Oh, Orsini! Yeah. Anyone who's ever learned, like, the history of Renaissance Rome or, like, the papacy or just had a glance at some of the building names in Rome will know these names. Both the Colonna and the Orsini claim to be descended from the old patrician families of ancient Rome, uh, though this connection is, is very hard to prove. Yeah. Both have very much mafia vibes. They nice. produced both cardinals and popes, as well as mercenaries yeah. and loan sharks. So, nice little mix. And, and they hate each other. They both hate each other. So popes nice. have to constantly walk a tightrope between the two factions, or risk falling into the proverbial shark-infested waters of a papal exile or murder. So huh. the Colonna at this, in this period were pro-French, uh, and they served as kind of Philip IV's agents in Rome, and the nice. Orsini were pro-papal supremacy. And also they were allied to Pope Boniface VIII's family. So Boniface VIII is backed by the Orsini. And uh, not only that, but he also fires and excommunicates two Colonna cardinals for a conspiracy to rob the papal treasury. Uh, So so the Colonna had a strong incentive to get rid of him. Yeah. None more so than one Giacomo Colonna, who went by the alias Sciara, which means brawler. Nice. Yeah. When I hear that title, I was imagining him going to the Pope and going, Kapow! Um, get ready. So, <laughs> <laughs> my God, please. So, um, led by Guillaume de Nogare, Philip's advisor, and Chiara Colonna, Philip's ally, 1,600 men assembled and marched on Anagni, which is a town just east of Rome where the Pope had a summer home. They arrived on the 7th of September, 1303, and they stormed the house and they took the Holy Father hostage, which is a shocking incident known as the outrage of Ananyi, but is one that's clearly really excites Eliza. Yes. I just imagine going to the Pope going, 
So when he encountered Pope Boniface, Chiara told him that he must come with him at once, that he was under arrest, and ought to abdicate the papal throne immediately. Seeing the swords of the men before him, the, the Pope simply replied, Elecol elecape, which means, here is my neck, here is my head. Oh, Kill me now. Uh, so upon hearing this, Chiara slapped the Pope across the face. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Shiara wanted so badly to just kill the Pope right here, but Nogare interceded, uh, reiterating orders from Philip that he be brought to France to face trial. Um, So they were going to do this properly. Um, By the law. Yes. But the Pope ended up getting freed by an angry mob that stormed Anani. Oh. So yeah, the the people in militia rose up and they and they set the Pope three, free after three days of captivity. But these were a very oh. shocking uh, three days for the Pope, who was eighty six. He was an eighty six oh. year old old man. He'd also just been slapped across the face by an <laughs> armored man. Uh, That's shock. So it left him so weak and traumatized that he died less than a month later. Oh. And when he died, he had failed to push through the excommunication of Philip IV. Uh, uh, Philip's like, yes. So Philip IV just basically essentially got away with murder. Uh, yeah, Philip IV was like, ha ha, God's punishment there. Killing yeah. you off. <laughs> God's punishment this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this obviously caused quite a scandal <laughs> throughout Europe, the, the outrage of Anani. But Boniface VIII's death was met with only lukewarm outrage uh oh. it turns out a lot of people had opposed his very radical <laughs> policies of papal supremacy and he hadn't just been unpopular with the french other people had been alarmed with him, him. <laughs> boniface was succeeded by a moderate pope called benedict the 11th who saw things had gotten way too gone way too far um didn't we have a po- an ex-pope who just died? Yes. So that was Celestine. No, 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 no. I mean, now. Oh, now. Oh, yeah. Benedict the Sixteenth. Yeah, Benedict. Recently died. Yeah. Yeah. But this is Benedict the Eleventh, a few Benedicts ago. Um, so he, he, yeah, things had gone way too far. He tried to kind of make everyone meet in the middle. Yeah. But just as he seemed to be working towards a compromise, he died he after died. only eight months uh, allegedly oh. poisoned by the Orsini family. So, <laughs> so following this, there was a year-long oh. gap between popes. Um, As they decide. In which, yeah, the, the pro-French and the anti-French factions were just squabbling, battled it out for supremacy. Eventually, they agreed on somebody outside of the papal states, outside of the Italian noble oh. families, who was less controversial, oh. I guess. He was still controversial, though, because he was French. Um, Well, more accurately, he was Occitan. He was from the south of France, which made him not really French, according to people at the time. Surprised the Orsini agreed. Yeah, well, that's the thing. like He wasn't, like, he was from France, but he was from Bordeaux. So he was from far from where the king is. Um, Bordeaux was, I mean, Bordeaux was technically an English territory at this time, because it's in Aquitaine. I believe. Um, I may be wrong, but I believe. But yeah, this Pope is called Clement V. So Clement has often been seen as Philip IV's puppet because he was French. As I've said, this is slightly a myth. But Clement was, again, a moderate Pope who wanted to mend fences. But also, as a moderate Pope, 
after the last moderate pope had just been murdered, Clement was a bit reluctant to go to Rome. (laughs) (laughs) So he decided to just go halfway to Rome and stay in Avignon in southeastern France, in in Provence, which was technically owned by the pope, kind of. Some of the land around it, the Venaissant region, was owned by the church, Mm. and the local countess ended up bequeathing Avignon to the papal states. So Uh. it's basically... Papal state. It's where the Pope lives. So after being crowned, Clement just decided to stay in Avignon. And uh, Clement's decision was uh, supposed to be a temporary thing. But as we'll see, the next seven consecutive popes will live in or around Avignon in what is now called the Avignon Papacy, lasting the next 70 years, which is also known by people who didn't like it as the Babylonian Captivity. (laughs) referring to in the Bible when the Jewish people were, or the, so the Israelites, I guess, were taken to Babylon as slaves and held there, right. um, unable to return to their rightful temple in Jerusalem. Um, Rome being Jerusalem in this metaphor. So... Yeah. Even though I totally prefer to be in Babylon. Yeah. That being said, Dante had always referred to Rome as Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Whereas uh, the idea of the Babylonian captivity being Avignon comes from Petrarch, who is a bit later than Dante. So you can see, like, even before Avignon, there was still this bad reputation for the place where the Pope was. Because yeah. Popes are corrupt, it turns out. Yep. Babylon is also one of my favourite songs by Lady Gaga. But moving on. Yeah, I know. It's a good song. <laughs> it's a good song. Um, so despite a very reserved personality, something he shared in common with Philip IV, actually... Clement proved to be a very diplomatic pope who rebalanced the scales of power successfully between the church and the crown in France. And he didn't just stay in Avignon, he travelled constantly around the neutral territory of Provence, and he uh, elevated cardinals from outside of Italy, making the church a bit more for for everyone. So there was some French, there was some Norman, there was some Occitan, and there were English. Not many Germans, though. I guess he didn't like the Germans. (laughs) The Avignon Papacy is going to become notorious for greed and decadence. But as I've said, so was Rome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story of how the papacy moves to Avignon, hmm. all because of Philip IV. But despite this little victory over the church, there was only so much that Philip IV could do to tax it. He could only get so squeeze so much money out of them. Yeah, He still needed money really badly. His kingdom was still hurting, uh, mainly due yeah. to the massive amounts of debt it had accumulated over the past few decades. Also, Queen Joan dies around this time of a sudden illness in 1305, which is very sad for him. Let's get into the money money troubles. Uh, so, yeah. so guess who Philip owed money to? English. What group German, of people? Italian. Within, within France. He did actually owe money, to, owe money to some Italian banks, but within France, who, what group oh, of people? Jews. Yeah, the Jews. So... Despite the Jewish people now being an extremely small minority in, in French society, thanks to everyone hating them, especially the persecutions of Louis IX, who burned a bunch of Talmuds, France is still home to about 100,000 Jewish people. And in 1306, Philip IV decides to expel them all and confiscate their property. <sighs> this is the French expulsion of the Jews, and it happens about 15 years after England has just expelled it's Jewish people. So it's a trend that we're starting to see. Um, so yeah, um, over 100,000 Jewish men, women, and children had to leave their country as refugees with everything they could carry because their very existence 
that was now illegal, as well as all of their rights to money and property. So if, if they didn't leave, they could expect a visit from either the Inquisition or an angry mob enacting a pogrom. Mm. Not the good kind of angry mob. This is one of the few instances where we do not condone angry mobs. But yeah, so even after taxing the church and expelling the Jews, Philip IV still has a lot of debt to clear. And mm. most of that debt is owed to one of the most powerful organizations in the Christian world. And this is the Knights Templar, who we are about to get into. So what do you know about the Knights Templar, Eliza? Nothing. (laughs) We'll be right back after this. The commander said, don't worry, I don't have the authority to kill you today, which was positive for that day anyway. In 1993, Chris Moon was captured by the Khmer Rouge while clearing landmines in Cambodia. With survival probability low, Chris was brought in front of the boss. He was just given a local nickname, Mr. Clever. Hi, I'm Steve Windus, host of the Batting the Breeze podcast. I'd love you to check out how Chris survived, along with some other great human stories at battingthebreeze.com. Hopefully see you there. We just know the name. I mean, they were knights. Um, <laughs> they wore crosses. Uh, why did they exist? Crusades. Mm-hmm. So they were elite fighters of the Crusades originally, formed to protect pilgrims. So the name Templar comes from their role defending the Temple of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And I, I think I mentioned this in a past episode. <laughs> you said they didn't do a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, th- th- this temple um, that they, you know, they supposedly defended was built on the spot where Jesus was crucified. So it was a very important uh, place for Christianity, obviously. Mm. So Templars, imagine them with classic like white uniforms with the red cross. It's what you picture when you picture a crusader. Um, they became extremely powerful as an order, thanks to donations from the church and the nobility in Europe who wished to support crusade, the crusading effort in the East without actually going. Um, so by 1300, Jerusalem had once again fallen and the crusader states were largely dissipated. They no longer existed, except in people's minds, um, because there were still people running around claiming to be Emperor of Constantinople or King of Jerusalem. Uh, One of them being Charles of Valois, Philip's brother, who married a claimant to Constantinople on like a French claimant to Constantinople. Um, So he, he decided that he should have that title now. Of course. But yeah, so the Templars were now more powerful than ever, even though the Crusader states were lost. Because back in Europe, their wealth had made them essentially into a bank. So they were, as well as taking donations, they were giving out loans to the most wealthy and powerful rulers of the time, including... The French. Philip IV, exactly. So Philip sees the Templar order. He decides, you're useless. What are you doing? You're just taking everyone's money and not giving it back. He looks at the Templar order, and then he decides, I'm going to end this bitch's whole career. (laughs) Yes! So... Oh, I love Philip. He's such a petty little revenge guy. He's the best. (laughs) Except when it comes to the Jewish people. Uh, That's not so good. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, that's not good. But, uh, yeah, so 
Speaking of the Jewish people, the expulsion of the Jews gives Philip some ideas about how he's going to go about this. He definitely wants to seize the Templars' property, destroy them as an order. Most of them exist in France now, so he should be able to easily like arrest them and everything. But he needs a reason. Now, the reason the Jews are so unpopular was because they were apostates. Everyone hated them for religious reasons. So he's got to just destroy the Templars' reputation and make them seem like horrible people who hate Jesus. So Corruption? Yes. Even worse. We'll get into it. So on Friday the 13th of October, 1307, I know, spooky day, uh... Philip arrested hundreds of Templars throughout France. Nice. And they were, uh, let's say, gently persuaded to confess <laughs> all sorts of criminal and heretical behavior that went on behind Ooh. closed doors among the Templars. <laughs> now, I'm not saying the Templars were perfect angels who were innocent of everything. They were men in the Middle Ages with swords, so they probably got up yeah. to all sorts of terrible things. Kinds of, yeah. But these charges are spectacular. Um, oh, yay. I can't wait to hear them. So they mostly revolved around a bizarre initiation ritual that the Templars supposedly performed. Sacrifice, um, drinking the blood. That would be cool, but but no, it's well. it's it's different and it's weirder. So <laughs> new recruits had to deny the sacrifice of Christ, declaring him a false prophet who lied about getting people into heaven and whose mm. mother was not a virgin when she conceived him. Um, <gasps> Which the whole virgin thing, I've always thought it was a very odd sticking point for Christianity. But anyway, um, yeah, they also deny the existence of of saints, deny the seven holy sacraments, including the Eucharist, and spit, urinate, or trample on a crucifix. And this is where it gets weird. So (laughs) the Templars also supposedly uh, worshipped an idol resembling a three-headed cat. Uh, which <laughs> Templars allegedly kept on a cord around their waists. Was it the Pope's familiar? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, back to cats again, cats being evil. Um, they also agree that only the Grand Master of the Templars can absolve their sins and that priests have no power. Then uh, at at the end of this bizarre ritual, the uh, Templar initiates get kissed by fellow knights on the mouth, the navel, the stomach, the spine, and finally the buttocks. Uh, (laughs) And then they proceed to do various other acts with fellow knights, which are definitely not safe for work. They generally come under the Christian definition of sodomy and my definition of a good time. Uh, so <laughs> if you told anyone about the secret rituals, you'd be killed by your fellow knights if you revealed any of it, um, which is how none of these supposedly centuries old practices had gotten out until Head now. Tight. Yeah. Um, someone spilled the beans. Someone spilled the beans after 300 years. <laughs> um, but yeah, knowing people... It, it shouldn't have taken 300 years, which is how you know it's all made up. Still fun, though. It's still fun, though. I guess it's only 200 years. Anyway, don't correct me. So <laughs> in addition to this apostasy, worshipping of idols, and sexual depravity, the Knights Templar were also accused of using their wealth not for charity, but their, for, for their own self-aggrandizement. Lustful. Uh, yes. Which is probably the more accurate accusation, actually, yeah. the corruption aspect. Um, but uh, then again, it's not like the King of France is going to put that money to a better cause. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can't really... Uh, <laughs> well, better cause not paying off his debts. It's kind of the pot calling the kettle black, is what I'm saying. Um, so Philip, in order to uh, push through these accusations, he had to get a stamp of approval from Pope Clement V 
then it could properly condemn the Templars mm-hmm. um, and, you know, take all their stuff, which is the main thing that he wanted. So Clement V very reluctantly condoned the dismantling of the Templars, provided that Philip retract the accusations of heresy and corruption that had been made against his predecessor, Boniface VIII. So Clement V is like, I'll let you do whatever you want with the Templars, as long as you agree that Boniface VIII was a good guy. And Philip's like, yeah, whatever, he's dead anyway. <laughs> yeah, not going to affect me. Can I destroy the Templars now? And Clement's like, yep, go ahead. So now it's time to burn some knights at the stake. Ooh. So in March 1314, after a legal battle that had gone on for seven years, Philip ordered the Templar leaders to be brought out from their long imprisonment and burned at the stake outside Paris in a massive public spectacle attended by the king and his whole court. What'd they name that? The Burning of the Templars. Oh, <laughs> cool title. <laughs> so um, the burning leaders included the last grandmaster of the order, Jacques de Molay, who, according to legend, as he burned up on the pyre, shouted a prayer for God to curse the king, his advisors, and the king's entire lineage to the 13th generation. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, and the Pope as well. Ah. So now we get into the curse of the Templars. Ooh! which is a thing that definitely exists so clement v dies of lupus just a month after the burning of the templars his body was placed in a church to await burial and the church caught fire rather poetically burning the pope as he had allowed the templars to be burned so there's a poetic (laughs) death Um, We also have some scandals happen in the French royal family, which, for reasons that I'll explain a bit later, we're not actually going to get into in this episode. We're going to get into next episode. But basically, it's it's bad times. Then Philip IV decides to go hunting. (gasps) No, (laughs) he does! So either on this hunt or as a result of this hunt, Philip had a cerebral stroke, which is caused by hemorrhaging or internal bleeding in the brain. So it was very vague in all the things I read, how exactly this relates to the hunting, but I'm guessing Philip IV was doing hard drugs. Um, No, I'm I'm just kidding. Um, But that is one of the causes of of a cerebral stroke. But yeah, I'm guessing that he, he had a head injury. Either he fell off his horse or he got hit by a branch, something. Uh, but it's it's very unclear, uh, like, what happened. But basically, he suffered a stroke in the forest of Alat, which is actually the same forest where Louis V, the last Carolingian, died in a hunting accident. Um, oh, it's a cursed forest. Cursed, yeah. So Philip was taken to the royal palace of Fontainebleau, just outside Paris, where after a few weeks, he died on the 29th of November, 1314 at the age of 46 less than a year after the burning of the templars and he was buried in the basilica of saint denis as you do i'm gonna guess the next king's like let's do some purification rituals uh well they if they did it didn't work i'm just gonna say that this curse uh does lingers Yeah, lingers. Um, For generations? We're just going to say it's a curse because it's fun. Who doesn't love a curse? 
Yeah, so we will see the curse of the Templars manifest in various other ways. Uh, many Christians blamed Philip's greedy dismantling of the order for all of this, the misfortunes that the country is about to suffer throughout the 14th century. Oh, that's why Dante put him in uh, hell. That's m- maybe. Um, actually, no, Dante's dead by this point, um, so oh. he wouldn't have known about that. Oh. But maybe he would have applauded it instead and not put him in hell. But yeah, there is there is misfortune ahead. Um, and I'll, I'll put it this way. So in the 1200s, there were five kings. In the 1300s, we're going to see nine kings. Ooh. And if you also include the people claiming to be king of France, it's closer to 14 kings. <laughs> so, yeah. And the last king of the 14th century will be Charles the Mad. Yes. But yeah, we've got eight others before him. Oh. Yeah. So closer though. Yay. Yep. And he is the king when a certain Joan of Arc is born. Yeah. He's my favorite. With that, we've covered the most major aspects of Philip's life. But there's a lot of detail to get into about his character, his government, and his family as we pass judgment on him. So we will... So so just... So let's get into Enchanté. Yes. Enchanté. So here is the is the portrait of Philip IV. Uh, it was painted by Jean Louis Bezard in the nineteenth century. Oh, it's terrible! <laughs> <laughs> oh, he does not look fair at all. Yeah, after all of that, he just looks like a knob. <laughs> oh, a little dumpy. His head's not even proportioned well to his body. Why is yeah. his head so tiny? Why is his head so big? Why is he not good looking? Okay, maybe to make this make a little more sense, I will now show you the tomb effigy of Philip IV in Saint-Denis. Ooh. So you can see some resemblance. Apparently this is what beauty was in the uh, 14th century. Um, like a dumpy man. But he's also not blonde, and all of the sources say he's blonde. So... I'm not trusting that portrait then. Jean-Louis Bézard dropped the ball in that that aspect. But to give him some credit, it does look like the tomb effigy. It's when he's a double chin attractive. I guess it was good to look plump back in the day. But with a food. really thin, tiny bod? I don't know. Because he doesn't really have a double chin in um, the effigy, really. I know, just in that portrait. That, that was I an artist's liberty. Boss. The artist let like yeah, let's what? make him slightly more ugly. Although I'm starting to yeah. develop a, a double chin, so I should be careful about what I say about them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, just so, his head's not doesn't look proportional to his body. Anyway, so <laughs> so the last uh, portrait we had, uh, Philip the Third. You remember the the shrewy looking one? Yeah, we had a tweet saying that it's actually Philip the Fourth, and there's actually been a lot of confusion online about whether it is uh philip the fourth or not the last portrait we had um oh uh, yeah but just to clear that up both of the portraits are in the chateau de versailles this one that we have here is labeled philip the fourth the other one is labeled philip the third by versailles which is the museum where it's in. and also they i'm just looking it up now the Effigy head of Philip III looks like the portrait. Exactly. That was, yeah, that was my other point. Thank you, Eliza. But it's weird that there's been confusion. But the, um, the other portrait is blonde. So I get why people would, would think that. (laughs) But, um. That blonde. 
well, dirty blonde. But yeah, there have been instances where I've gotten the, the, the episode image wrong. Like, I'm pretty sure our image for Carloman the first was a tomb effigy, and it's actually the effigy of Carloman the second. Um, but yeah, I found but literally Carl- no picture for Carloman the first, so he gets what he gets. <laughs> yeah, don't get upset. Yeah. But anyway, moving on to the next image, we've got a really lovely, colourful one of Edward I doing homage to Philip IV. Oh, he's blonder hair. Who is the little bald man? What little? In the middle. In the middle, between the kings. Oh, I don't know. He's just just there. (laughs) He just looks so awkward. (laughs) Third wheeling on the homage ceremony. (laughs) With the side eyes. So this is uh, this is fifteenth century. It's from the Grand Chronicle, um, and uh, it was produced okay, the during. The crowd does not look. Happy. It's notable that it's an image of the English king swearing homage to the French king because it was produced during the Hundred Years' War uh, when it became uh-huh. increasingly important for the French to say that we're the boss. Um, yeah, yeah. I like how he's the fr- the English king has the lions. Then, yeah, it's cool. Obviously, yeah, it's nice little detail. It is cool. And there's just fleur-de-lis everywhere so that you know you're in France. It's like up the walls. It's even like along the rafters, like taped to the rafters. (laughs) So funny. Mm -hmm. So next, uh, we've got some fun images of the, well, we've got, there's actually a lot of images of this, but this is the Templars about to be burned at the stake from a a separate chronicle. Although Philip does have brown hair in this again. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) I like the one who's obviously tying them up. He's like, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I have to do this. I have to do this. And the king's like. <laughs> and then the next image is exciting because it's actually a contemporary image. It was produced in the last year of Philip's reign. So around 1313. Because. And this is Philip and his family. Oh. It's a family picture. Oh, nice. Yeah. So on the left, oh. we've got the two younger sons, uh, Charles yeah, and, and Philip Jr. Like, they're more like English clothing, though. Well, the, so far left is is Charles and Philip, the younger sons. Um, yeah. Then to the right of them, that's Isabella. So she's the Queen of England. Oh. But she oh, is okay. Philip's daughter. Yeah. Uh, then you've got Philip himself, the big guy in the middle. And then yeah. to the right of him, you've got Louis, who at this point is the yeah. king of Navarre. So he's inherited his mother's kingdom oh, of Navarre. Okay. So he's got That's the arms of Navarre that. on him. Yeah. And he's about to inherit France as well. So he's about to unite them together, um, as you'll see next episode. And then we've got the brother. We've got Charles of Valois there at the end, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. looking the same age as everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but he's there as well. And they're all doing a little a little wave. Sir. Hello. Hello. Hey. Um, Except for one of the, no, two of them, the two. Uh, yeah, the others are just like sort of doing like a sort of limp wrist thing. <laughs> it's like, uh, my hand got tired from waving. Yeah. Oh, I like how the king's holding gloves. Yeah, it's a nice little detail, isn't it? It's really good. It's yeah. a really good little contemporary image. It, guys, if, you, yeah. if you're wondering what we're talking about, it is the Wikipedia image for Philip IV. That's what we're looking at. So just Google Philip IV and you'll see it. I really want a chair like that with lions. That maybe it's Dagobert's chair. Yes. I'm sure it must be Dagobert's chair. Yeah. Um, I want a lion chair. Which, by the way, today is the day that Dagobert died. Oh. Yeah, 19th of January. Anyway, 
<laughs> so moving on, I've also got a little um, deathbed scene for Philip. Charles of Valois is saying goodbye. Oh, yeah, he's like, oh. Charles of Valois is the one wearing the blue with the crown. Yeah. Who's the one next to him? He's got a hands clasp and he's like, oh. I don't know. Not sure. Some other noble. Mm. But you you know it's Charles of Valois because he's got the coat of arms on it on his shirt. Mm. The other ones don't, so it's hard to identify them. Uh so my grandma, when I was little, she passed away from a stroke. And I'll never forget how my dad explained it to me when I was like, because I was like four or five. Uh-huh. And he's, and the way he explained it is that he was like to me, she had a bubble in her brain that popped. Oh, so God. as a five-year-old, I know, but if you say a stroke to a five-year-old, they're not going to understand that. But right. I, a five-year-old, four-year-old can understand the concept of a bubble. So uh-huh. for me, it, it made it make sense for me. So that's why I understood that she passed away. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I think that was a perfect like description of it. Yeah. For like a four or five year old child. Stroke is one of those things that you think of like a thing that modern people have. Um, yeah. And then you, you read about someone in the middle ages having a stroke and you're like, oh. You're like, what? It's not poison. It's not falling off the horse. Yeah. Or you read about somebody in the middle ages having cancer or something. And it's like, oh. Right, cancer existed back then. <laughs> yeah, that's the deathbed. Oh, we've also got a battle depiction, you'll be pleased to yes. know, of Philip's one battle, the Battle of Monzon Pavel, where he loses the Oriflamme. Here he's, he's just about to lose the Oriflamme. He's waving it, or yeah. the person behind it. Oh, no, he, he's looking he's, kingly. The person behind him is waving it. Um, yeah. And he's about to slice someone's head off with a sword. Yeah, he looks kingly. kingly. I'm liking that depiction. He's got lovely curves. Um, <laughs> and the horse is looking a bit scared. Horse does not like what's going on. Well, I don't think any horse would like going into war. <laughs> Get me the hell out of here. Um, I feel the horse. I feel yeah. like that'd be me in war. So that's a lovely 19th century painting. Um, I assume he got the Oriflamme back in the peace treaty Probably. because we then hear about it in subsequent battles. So I'm, I'm sure they got it back. Either they got it back or they yeah. just made another one. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, who's going to know? Yeah. So now let's go a little beyond the images. Let's go into Philip IV's character and his legacy yes. for, for the rest of the Enchante round. Good, because some of his pictures have been letting me down. Yeah, but generally it's good. It's a good range, I think. It's a good yeah, range Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a range. But yeah, a lot of them like... suffer from... The medieval of he, it all. Um, yeah, but, the look is very, like, you know, crafty, though. I guess. People at the time always portray him as, like, the pious medieval king, because, like, that's just how you portray a king. Um, no. Yeah. I'm so much better than that. It's either that or it's his political opponents portraying him as, like, the devil. Um, but, yeah, we yeah. have we have contradictory opinions about Philip's character. Okay. So, despite how well-documented... The reign is, um, the character of him himself is rather elusive. One historian calls him elusive as smoke, makes him sound very cool and mysterious. Um, But honestly, the reason he's so mysterious is because it's so contradictory and we don't have a biographer for Philip. So we don't have somebody going into detail about his life and like his childhood. Surprised he didn't order that, considering he was such intellect. Yeah, well, he very well could have, but we've just lost it, unfortunately. Lost it, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the way world history works. Yeah. Bernard Seyssé was one of the people who wrote about him, <laughs> as you could probably imagine. He's not, he's not got light. a lot of nice things to say. He said, uh, the king is like an owl, the most beautiful of birds, but worth nothing. Oh! He is the most handsome of men, but he stares fixedly in silence, 
neither a man nor a beast. He is but a statue. It's weird that he compares it to an owl, considering owls are usually associated with wisdom. Yeah, not by medieval people, apparently. They thought owls were just hmm. pretty, but did nothing. And useless. Useless. I guess it makes sense, because you can't really eat owls. Like, they don't taste very good. And Yeah, it's like, hey, you can't eat koi. Yeah. So they would just they see them as, as kind of useless. But they've never seen the sword and the stone with the smart-talking mm-hmm. owl. So... Um, <laughs> if they did, then they'd have a different opinion. If they did, they'd think it was the devil and they'd burn it. Um, so, true, true. so um, hostile writers like Say Say saw Philip being quiet and expressionless and thought he was vapid and useless, much like the owl, but others praised him for his piety and his humility. And we can definitely see a lot of competence and stability in the way that he yeah. governed his realm. So he was smart, or at I, least surrounded himself by smart people. Exactly. Which is still equally as smart. Which is exactly, that's a smart move in itself. Um, and I also, I, I personally find the idea of like a silent king to be very like slightly scary, but, but compelling, I, I know. guess. Yeah. I know, I prefer that. He just sits like a you statue. You can't tell and he what just, he's thinking. He just watches everywhere. Yeah, you can't tell what he's thinking. And then if he does move, you're like, oh God. Yeah. Don't want to make eye contact with him. Yeah. So let's get into the epithets. So yes. from a young age, obviously he's known as Philip the Fair. Um, or Philippe Le Bel in French. His hair? Yeah, both for his blonde hair and fair complexion, and for his beauty, uh, nice. apparently. Uh, he was also supposed to be a very tall and strapping man. Nice. However, his ruthless, stubborn, and unyielding character by the end of his reign earns him a different epithet, one that I haven't Ooh. told you. Um, Yay! In French, it's Le Roi de Fer, or in English, the Iron King. Oh! <gasps> I love it! Yes. Oh, that's one of my favourite epithets. Yes. Which the Iron King is also the title of a novel by Maurice Drouin, who writes the Accursed Kings series. And Ooh. he's the first king in the series. This series later served as part of the inspiration for Game of Thrones. So, oh. yeah, it was written in the 1950s to 70s, I think. Um, I really love that, The Iron King. Yeah. I would really recommend these books, although they are they, they would spoil the next few episodes. So wait till those few episodes yeah. are over. Also, because they're written in the 50s, there's a little bit of casual sexism and racism uh, that you just have oh, to deal with if you read old books. But yeah, otherwise, highly recommended. There's also a, a miniseries and a film. Uh, and we, we, might, we might watch that for the Patreon. That would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Or do a book yeah, review. Who knows? Hmm. Um, what a way to put wildlife if we do that book review. Yeah, well, if it, the the Iron King is actually not a very long book. You could, uh, I okay. got through the audiobook in like two days. <laughs> so, okay. so yeah, we've got that. We've got Drew on in terms of uh, literature. We've also got Dante, of course, um, who Woo! moved through the time of Philip's reign. He had an extremely negative opinion of him, which is reflected in his Divine Comedy. So, as we know, his father Philip the Third was known as the father of the French pest which you interpreted to be father of pigeons. Um, Dante calls uh, Philip directly uh, uh, mal de Francia, which means the French plague. Um, I love it. That's a good epithet. Yeah, and it's kind of implied, because Dante doesn't actually mention him by name, it's kind of implied that this is just a common nickname for Philip um, in Italy. (laughs) Mm. Well, in my mind, he will always be the pigeon king. Yeah. 
So that's the stuff I have for Philip for Enchante. Bit of detail there. He also commissions a lot of churches. He, continue, he continues the building of Notre Dame, brings France further into the golden age of architecture. That's also stuff that's left over from his reign. But that's the main stuff that we have. Okay. I think he's going to get decent marks. Like, a lot of people know about him. Like, sure, he's, like, the having mentioned by Dante is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think the main I letdown, like and he's well known today, uh, yeah. especially in France. Um, I think the main letdown is just the really bad portrait. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, I'm not seeing like a s- smart, like intellectual. Because you hear all of that, key. and then you're like, this "Yeah, where's that connivingness? I think where's it, that calculativeness? If only, if if only Philip III's portrait was his portrait. Because I think if you swapped them, they'd make a bit more sense." Yeah. Because Philip IV is, like, a sneaky, like, shrew. And Philip III is a potato. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe someone missed, um, inscribed that, you know, accidentally. I thought you were going to say They they were doing accidentally added an extra, like, strength. They're like, oh, God, we've got to make it this Philip now. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. But they're definitely, we could definitely see them based on the effigies. So there's no avoiding that. Um, maybe they accidentally swapped the tombs around. Who knows? Yes, that's my thinking. <laughs> so what do we want to give for Enchante? Lose a few points to those horrible pictures. Yeah. But overall, pretty decent. Like, mm-hmm. maybe like seven, eight. Yeah. Yeah, go for eight. I think eight as well. Because, um, I mean, Louis the Ninth got a 10 because he's got, like, you know, whole cities named after him and stuff like that. Um, true, true. Philip the Fourth has a bit of that stuff, but not quite as much. He doesn't have... Yeah. The thing that pushed Louis over the edge was his whole saint thing. Um, yeah. Philip doesn't quite have that, but but Philip the Fourth is definitely up there. It. He's definitely now... Yeah, with yeah. an 8, he's definitely now in the top 10 for Enchante. So yeah. that's yeah. good. good for him. So moving on to On Guard. On Guard. Got a lot in this round. Okay. Um, <laughs> a lot of it's kind of going over stuff that we've already done. So yeah. I'll try not so to get too much in the weeds. But yeah. So Philip's re- Philip the Fourth's reign is all selfish wins. <laughs> Yay! My favorite. It's got selfish wins out the wazoo. Because Philip made a huge effort to centralize power around the king. And he's just like, I'm going to use the law for my own benefit. To exactly. get revenge, get revenge, 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 revenge. That was his song. But also within France, he's centralizing the kingdom and he's already got this big royal domain, which was passed down Everyone to him. into the fold. Yeah. And he's folding it all in together. He's, he's, he's nice. coordinating it and he's making Make sure. Make a nice that... little parcel. Exactly. It all runs smoothly. He's putting the pastry on, he's wrapping sticking it, it in up. the oven. And... Oh, I was thinking more present wrapping up in a bow. Oh, I thought we were talking about a pie. <laughs> but... But, no, I'll take a pie. Yep. Cherry um, pie. And he's got his finger right in the middle of the pie. And is a big cherry at the end. Anyway, this metaphor is going on for too long. So So thanks to Philip the Fourth, we now have not only a huge royal domain, but one that has actually run well, um, where the king's will is exercised at every level of society. Nice. Um, including most significantly in the church. Nice. Yeah. So after the death of Boniface the Eighth and the papacy moving to mm-hmm. Avignon, Philip the Fourth now has a much firmer hold over the direction that papal 
policy goes, especially with a bunch of new French cardinals that get into the the papal states. Yes. So this is probably the most control that a French king has had over the papacy since Charlemagne. And he did it all without being excommunicated. Woo! Came very, very close, but wasn't... But convenient uh, death. Yeah. (laughs) So Philip was also careful uh, not to put too much authority into the hands of a single man or woman. Uh, He had a different minister for each aspect of his bureaucracy, be it law, finance, defense, etc. Each of whom were handpicked by Philip for their merit rather than their status. Smart, smart, smart. All the major decisions went through him, not through a prime minister or a favorite. Smart. Yes. And the evidence for this doesn't come from any chronicler. Uh, We don't get a chronicler telling us this. We can just tell from the official documents that have just Philip's signature all over them. Uh, showing that he's read every part of it. Far more than any previous king, by the way. (laughs) Not just blindly giving someone else the stamp. Yes. That being said, there are a small selection of men who were considered the chief advisors of Philip. But it wasn't just one. Yes. But they were. Philip is the head of the octopus. They are the tentacles. Like, Philip is far away from the spot where the tentacles touch. Yeah. But Philip is controlling the thing that's touching them. I think that's a good metaphor. Controlling the limbs. Yeah. So... The advisors. So we've already met Guillaume. I'm just watching an octopus with a little crown on its head. Yeah. Mm. So we've already met Guillaume de Nogore. He was the guy who orchestrated the seizing of the Pope at Anagni. Mm-hmm. So he was a Gascon from far southern France who came to Paris as a young man and rose to become a professor of law. Oh, uh, nice. His legal genius attracted the attention of Philip, who appointed him as keeper of the seals and essentially his lawyer. Um, in 1302, nice. following the he death, did his job well. Yeah, following the death of the previous incumbent Pierre Flot, who also did a very good job. So basically, Flot and then Nogare basically did all of Philip's dirty work. But you know, Nogare brought it to another level. Uh, he was directly behind the plot uh, to seize the Pope, obviously, and as well as the prosecution of the Templars, which is probably why Nogare was the first victim of the Curse of the Templars. He died in 1313, the year between the Templars getting dissolved by the Pope and being burned at the stake. How'd he die? He was found dead with his tongue thrust out. Ooh. So potentially poisoned. He made a lot of enemies. He was also, by the way, behind the prosecution of Guichard, the Bishop of Troyes, who supposedly murdered Queen Joan with witchcraft. Um, So he was also part of that. So it's also suspected that maybe Guichard had him poisoned. Or killed him with witchcraft. You know. (laughs) He's done it before. (laughs) Yeah. So then we have another advisor of Philip. Um, this is Ongerond de Marigny. He is the money man. He's a minor Norman baron who rose through Queen Joan's household, actually, um, eventually becoming Philip's chief minister, while his brother his brothers became the Archbishop of Sens and the Bishop of Beauvais. Uh, he likewise did a lot of Philip's dirty work, intent on expanding the tre- treasury by any means necessary. So he's behind the expulsion of the Jews. He's behind... Uh, uh, debasing the coinage during the reign. He's behind raising extortionate taxes, including against the church. Um, so anything he's not behind? <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's behind all the, the, the money stuff, basically. And uh, while Phil IV signed up off on all of the major policies of the realm, his chief advisors were the ones who carried them out. So to everyone in France, it seems like Marigny was behind all of this greedy politics. Oh. Um... 
So in a way, they're not only the arms of Philip, they're also kind of his shield from any yeah. like, credit. And if, if anything goes down with them, he can just he can just cut them loose. True, true, which is pretty good. So when Philip IV died and Louis X took the throne, there was a huge purge um, of all of Philip's most unpopular counsellors. And Marigny found himself first on the list. His arch nemesis was Charles of Valois, a very powerful man, uh, who had taken Louis X under his wing. So Marigny got hanged as a scapegoat for Philip IV's more unpopular policies, another uh, victim of the Templar's curse. The joke was on Louis X, though, because the French economy started to crumble from this point without Marigny. So... Nogaret and Marigny are the most famous ministers of Philip's reign, but there's loads of them. There's loads of ministers running around doing doing the king's bidding in all sorts of provinces of the royal domain. Um, So Philip, he's not a micromanager. He's just, he's just an overseer. Good at. Yeah. Yeah. Good at delegating. Uh, Yeah. And, um... Also means we don't know much about Philip's inner thoughts, what he was thinking about things, because it's really other people writing documents that he signs. So it's kind of clever. He like almost doesn't really leave a paper trail in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good modern day, like mafia vibes. It, it's very mafia vibes. He, 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 I actually written in my notes, he reminds me of a mob boss. <laughs> yeah. And everyone around yeah. him is just disposable. Yeah. Also, you can see why um, it's almost nice of him to not involve Queen Joan too much in his, in, in his administration. In a way, no. that's kind of good because... Not using her as a shield. The Queen doesn't get her hands dirty, yeah. And also she kind of balances it out, like gives him like a better rat. But yeah, Philip IV isn't afraid of action, though. He's not just hiding behind a curtain like the Wizard of Oz. Um, yeah. When it came to war, he was considered a comp- competent commander. He did his duty by leading the royal troops in his wars against England and Flanders early on in his reign. He didn't make huge strides or conquests as Philip Augustus had, but he didn't have to. He already had a giant royal yeah. domain. He just had to defend it and maybe expand it a little bit, which yeah. he did. And you don't want to expand it too much or else it'll be hard to maintain. Exactly. As other kings have learnt. Yeah. So the um, the most famous battle that he fought was Monzon-Pavel, which was a slightly mm. underwhelming battle because he only kind of won. And and, and he lost. The- he lost his flag. <laughs> Um, but Philip was able to resolve both the conflict with England and with Flanders to his advantage and through negotiation or just dumb luck, maybe mm-hmm. a convenient set of And also using the Scots as well. Yeah. The... And he also bit off a chunk of Flanders and got England to give up Gascony, which is good too. Nice. But yeah, I see a lack, the lack of battles as less of a flaw and more of a feature yeah. for Philip because he's doing on guard yeah. in other ways. Um, yeah. Which we're increasingly going to have to see that going into like monarchs that are less battlefieldy and more like behind the scenes negotiating, because yeah. there's going to be a few of those coming up. Yeah, and I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing not having yeah battles. Like I do love a good battle, but you know he's doing well in other ways. Yeah, but for Philip, it's like more about the legal battles and stuff. I know he does them well. Yeah. Because as we've seen with the Pope stuff and the Templar stuff, there's a big emphasis on the law. So the king justifies every decision he makes, um, not just by stamping his foot and saying, I'm the king, do what I say, but through arguments and justifications based on legal precedent. I know, he's good that way. Yeah. 
So it's nice and that's him. and that's because he's hired all of these legal es- experts to run his government. So he's got this army of lawyers basically instead of an army of soldiers. He has soldiers, that too, yeah. but you know, he he only brings in the soldiers to beat people up once he's definitely sure last, that yeah. he has a legal reason to do it. Yeah. Smart. Um yeah, he, you know, he's just It's like he's using the law as a shield as his weapon. Exactly. He's 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 not a tyrant. He's just asserting his legal right to bash you over the head and take all your stuff. <laughs> in a legal manner. I'll applaud that. Until it comes to Jewish people. <laughs> yeah. Um, not- but still a selfish win. you got to hand it to him. Yeah. So Philip did establish peace by the end of his reign, and uh, he ended up in a strong enough position to gobble up bits of the Holy Roman Empire while the empire was flailing on its back like a turtle. Um, and <laughs> at the very end of Philip's reign, we do, however, like in the very last year, see the beginnings of a downward spiral for France. Um, but that's the curse's fault. Yes, yeah, the curse. <laughs> a lot of this is due to the nobility having a big backlash against a lot of Philip's policies, a lot of which oh. meant less power and uh, okay. money for them. But uh, generally, uh, we'll get into this in Bolivia, but Philip's actually quite popular among the peasants. Um, because of nice. the way he limited noble rights. So, the, yeah, the administrative apparatus that Philip IV set up ended up being so effective that it could withstand a bad king or two. So when we have a bad ruler, we're no longer going to see an immediate collapse of, of France. It's the, it's robust yeah. enough to hold things together. To hold it, yeah. Because the, cause the wheel keeps turning, at least for now. So <laughs> modern historians describe this as a tr- transition from personal monarchy to bureaucratic monarchy. Um, mm. which we've already been seeing happen for a little while with like the bailiffs and the, and the prevos and like yeah. the, the new officials that are coming in. But Philip sort of sees this to its logical conclusion. Yeah. So that's on guard. Nice. What do we want to give Philip the fourth? I want to give him a good score. And I that's not even, it. I haven't even really mentioned again, like the massive cojones it takes to take on and defeat the Pope, the Templars. I know. He just does it well. Those are the big selfish wins of, of the race. I know. They're really good they're ones too, especially against the Pope. Oh, I love And that. they're going to be huge point makers for Ulala as well, I think. I know. Oh, i got to give him a good score for this. Yeah, me too. I'm give it a high. Like at least an eight. Mm. I obviously take one off for Jews because, you know. Well, this good. isn't fully Vu. This is on guard. Um, oh, right. Yeah. It's different. I will get lost. This isn't, would you want to live under him? This is how well did he do good stuff for him. Oh, right. Yeah. He did very well. Yeah, he did very well. He did very well. Don't know what he could have done to make it even better. I mean, he could have been a bit better at fighting wars, like the actual fighting component. Yeah. But I think it's like, he wasn't like his father of just like, yeah. like predecessors of pointless, stupid crusades. He did as well as he needed to do. Like, fighting's definitely not, like, his main thing. But he didn't need it to do be successful. Mm. It was almost like a last resort. He did do a lot of hunting, and he was, he was meant to be very good at hunting. So maybe we just didn't... He just didn't get the opportunity to show his, his fighting prowess, I guess. But he didn't need to, because he had all these, these lawyers... Lawyers. <laughs> ...to yeah. do the fighting for him. I think he's just very smart. And he's got a very good sense of self-preservation. But he he's also very fat destroying everything he's bold in the way that philip he's the bold, bold was not yeah he's the iron king yeah. that's pretty i know i kind of give him like a nine yeah 
I agree with a nine, I think. Yeah, just lose one point just for no major battle, but... I think of his time, he's one of the best. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, of the ones that we've seen recently. We've had a bit of fumbling recently. Yeah, those stupid crusades. Yeah. Always bloody cursing them with those. Because Philip Augustus, we both gave a 9.5 because he did loads of great expansion. Yeah. But yeah, I think Philip then sort of makes things steady. So he's got a nine. That it can survive like after his death. Yeah. To a degree. So, okay, that's an 18 for On Guard. Pretty good. We got a 16 and 18. Nice. So, voulez-vous. Voulez-vous. Voulez-vous is going to be more mixed, but there's still a yeah. lot of stuff here. So so like most Capetians, Philip IV was out, outwardly extremely pious. So he, he was following the tradition of Louis IX. He did penance for both his own sins and those of his people. And this might seem like a contradiction. Like, how is he seen as pious when he's, like, doing all this nefarious stuff? But think of it as a sort of, like, circular logic. So He's not being lustful. He doesn't have heaps of mistresses. That is true. He's not being lustful. That's a a big factor that people cared about a lot of the time. But also, um, so the circular logic is that Philip is really pious. He's a godly king who is king because God chose him to rule. Therefore, anything he does is in line with God's plan. Therefore... What he does is God's will, because it was God's will that he be king. So it's God's will. Nice. <laughs> That's the circular logic there. Which I could use that logic. <laughs> so yeah, it's God's will that he's king, therefore he's a godly king. It's like, oh, it's God's will that I eat this cake. Yeah, because God wanted me to have this cake. Otherwise, why would this cake be here? Exactly. That's the logic. Oh, that's my logic for life now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... So it's the essentially, gods wanted me to do it. This is the I same. Gods. Yeah. So this is the same logic. Um, I'm I'm kind of very much oversimplifying it, but this is the same logic basically that would lead to the divine right of kings becoming a thing, becoming a big sort of philosophical idea in a few centuries. Nice. So unlike his father Philip III, Philip IV was very well educated. Um, mm. He was taught by some of the top scholars that Paris had to offer, as we said which had now become the intellectual capital of Europe. And part of this is thanks nice. to Philip and his wife, Joan, sponsoring schools and that sort of thing. Nice. So Philip is pious and he's intellectual, like St. Louis, but his personal character was very unlike St. Louis in other ways, mm-hmm. setting aside all of the, all of the <laughs> nefarious stuff. Um, he loved to host extravagant feasts and appreciated fine food and wine. He saw it as nice. his duty not just to be pious and be like a godly king, but also to have splendor and magnificence to rival other courts, as you expect from the king of France. Yeah, um, like He expanded the royal household, employing more servants, um, and nice. he, he also expanded the palace so that it could host bigger parties, have more guests. Yay. Um, and he employed artisans and builders to, to extend and redecorate these palaces. Nice, employing people. Exactly. It's good. it's good for the economy. <laughs> really is. So at the start of Philip's reign, people did worry he'd he'd go the way of his father and he'd be another crusader. It was more the fact that he was hunting a lot and people were like, uh, it's kinda uh, like when a politician plays golf a lot and people get outraged and they're like, Why isn't he doing his job? Even though stop it's like golfing. Yeah, yeah. It's like people need a rest time. God. It's like calm down, it's a Sunday. So as time went on, Philip not only became increasingly dedicated to his realm, but also its people. So Philip was at odds with some of his family members and the nobility at large. Um, However, he had a good relationship with the peasants. Which is important. It's important. A lot of the work he did to limit the rights of nobility, as we've mentioned, ended up sort of 
indirectly creating more rights for peasants and more sort of social mobility. And uh, we are at very much peak population and prosperity for France. Things are about to go downhill uh, as we end up Mm. getting famines and eventually the Black Death. But this is peak. Mm, Also, despite his aloof coldness at court, Philip actually had something of a common touch. (laughs) His noble opponents accused him of walking among his people too much, because that's a terrible crime. Um, But this is another sort of proud tradition for Capetian kings, I think. Uh, Not only is there the practice of curing scrofula with the king's touch, which you can't really do if you Mm -hmm. don't never see any peasants, but both Hugh Capet and Louis IX used to go out in humble clothes and go check in with how the other half oh, live. Yeah. That's good to know about who you're act like ruling over. Exactly. But uh, because of how villainous Philip could be, I wonder if he had like ulterior motives. He was like spying on his people in this like little disguise. He was like, Ooh, what are the people saying mm-hmm. about Charles Me. of Valois? <laughs> I totally seem doing it to gather dirt and dish. On people. Exactly. Yeah. Just see what people are saying. And then, and then at a feast, he's like, guess, guess what the peasant said about you. <laughs> I heard. (laughs) So that's some good stuff of Vulevu. If you also bear in mind the huge, like, legal and educational reforms that Philip IV instigated throughout the kingdom, he made lawyers uh, important. Lawyering became one of the best jobs around. And also, he had a merit based council. I mean, he wasn't employing peasants, but he was employing sort of lower nobles who had access to education. Usually wouldn't have that opportunity. Exactly. Um, but there were, of course, people who suffered during the reign. Philip's wars against Flanders and England in the 1290s were way too long and way too costly. Yeah. And uh, after that, France is at peace, but we lose Queen Joan in 1305. Mm. And Joan has been a very generous and merciful queen who did her best to curb Philip's worst impulses. And we see a bit of a, a bit of a strong reaction to Philip. He has this vendetta against Guichard, who supposedly murdered the queen. And correlation does not equal causation, and there is a variety of other factors for Philip going a bit off the rails after Joan dies, uh, like, you know, the thing with Pope Boniface and the mm. whole Templar thing. But I think it's worth noting that Philip does become more cruel and ruthless after uh, Joan's death Joan. towards his enemies. He lost the angel on his shoulder. Yeah, a little bit. But I don't know, that might just be speculation on my part. Um but to end like on, a, on a on a rather sour note, we also have the expulsion of France's yeah. Jewish communities. We've had like expulsion of Jews from certain cities, like I think Philip so Augustus like expelled France. them from Paris. But this is from France; like you can't be in France anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this comes soon after England and uh, I think Flanders also did expulsions of, of Jewish people. So, where are all the Jews going, Germany? I think, yeah, Germany, Spain, but of course Spain will later expel them in the Spanish Inquisition. But you'll notice that a lot of Jews today have German surnames because that's mainly where they settled in Europe in the end of the Middle Ages when surnames started becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. So that is that. (laughs) That's that's, that's not Ulala, that's Vulivu. So what do we want to give him? So, like, if I wasn't Jewish, I would probably want to live under his reign. Yeah, that's the thing. That's always the tricky thing. But I think we always dock at least one point for anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, yeah, like, obviously we've docked for that. But other than that, like, he's, like, I'd want to live under him. 
Yeah, as seems as like a, a good time. As long as you're not a peasant, a Templar. Uh, what do you mean not a peasant? Heritage. Sorry. You're a peasant, it sounds better. Okay, if you're not a low-down <laughs> peasant. If you're a wealthy peasant, which did exist, there were wealthy peasants, but uh, I think there were laws saying you couldn't wear yeah. nice clothes if you were a peasant, even if you were wealthy, mm-hmm. which is quite funny that they had to put a law in saying... Nook Nasco's for you. You're a peasant, you have to dress like a peasant. You're not allowed to wear the colour blue. <laughs> eh, that was expansive. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's like, it's in, it's up there in like reform territory. But yeah. It's not quite great reform. Mm, yeah. Which great reform for me is like an eight. Yeah. Like I like the education aspect. I like how he's like not doing as many battles and pointless crusades, like sending people to their death. That is true. That's a good point. Come on, even when he was prince, he was like, we shouldn't be going to invade Aragon. Like, you know, it's pointless. Hmm. He was more on the people's side. There's a lot of ruthless things, but a lot of it doesn't involve the wider population. Yeah. It's just like... Unless yeah. you count the Jewish right. people. That's the one. That's always the caveat. Yeah. Yeah. Because they are definitely just regular people trying to live their lives. Yeah. <laughs> and minding their own business. What do you think? I want to give them a decent mark. Yeah, it's definitely above five. But oh, yeah, yeah. How far I was thinking like five. seven, eight, seven. Yeah. Seven or eight. 7.5? Yeah, 7.5. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do 7.5 as well. We're yeah. doing a lot of agreeing now. <laughs> I know. We, we agreed on all the scores of Joe's episode as well. I think seven was the number in my mind. We'll go seven. It is a mass expulsion of Jews. It is pretty bad. Yeah, that's and it is lost. not nice necessarily to be there. Although his court is really nice. Yeah, 7.5. <laughs> I heard the court's the deciding factor. Yeah. It was pretty. Um, 7.5. Like, even as a soldier, I'd want to live in his time, because at least I'm going on pointless crusades. Yeah, that's true. There are wars, but there's not a super huge amount of fighting. Yeah, where, like, mm. dramatic losses of life, pointless war, why did we even go, kind of thing, mm. like his predecessors had. I mean, arguably all wars, all, all wars are pointless, but... Yeah, but those ones are particularly pointless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were like Vietnam War pointless. Yeah, that's true. So that's a 15 for Voulez-vous. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. So let's get into Ooh La La. We've got stuff Yay! here. Ooh La La. Uh, we've covered Philip's fight with the Pope and the Templars in enough detail, I think. Yay. To give them an Ooh La La Yep. It's basically Philip sending out his agents to do bad stuff, uh, incurring the wrath of God. A curse uh, that is rippling down the through the accusing of the Pope. The accusing of the Pope. I whole... love using, accusing the Pope using law too is even better. The whole like petty battle back and forth with them with like Philip burning the thing and then the Pope getting angry and then doing another bull and then eventually there's like three bulls against Philip and it's like, yeah. I just love the escalation of it. I know. Um, I love how Philip's like, I'm just going to make this even more dramatic. It was very fun to research because I was like, oh, oh. Now he's doing... Oh. Oh, <laughs> so there's that. Um, the other major bit of scandal in Philip's reign is something that I've avoided talking about. It comes from Philip's three sons and their wives. It's an incident called the Tour de Nel affair, which I know that people listening who know are going to be really mad that I didn't get into detail okay. here, but simply didn't have time. And it happens at the okay. very, very, like literally last moment 
of Philip's uh, life. So he's only indirectly involved. Um, okay. But let's just say. Tell me about it, though. I, 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 I will get into major detail about it in, Next. in, in Louis the Tenth. Yeah. Because okay. we'll have time. But okay. I'm just going to say it. It's like a big, saucy thing that happens. Um, and I'm not getting into detail. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, Leave but me on a cliffhanger much. It is reflective. This incident ends up being reflective of the fact that Philip IV doesn't handle his family very well. Um, and okay. his children are a bit... Squabbly. <laughs> they're just not doing the right thing, basically. His children and his children-in-law. Naughty, naughty. Yes. There is actually a lot more, a lot of evidence that Philip wasn't very close to his sons. He was more close to his daughter, Isabella. Even though she was Queen of England, she frequently journeyed to France. And that was how she was at court in Paris, uh, able to talk to Philip and expose the Tour de Nel affair, which we're going to learn all about. But she is, really she is involved as well. But cliffhanger, we're going to leave that. Um, so it's this, hard for me to give points about that when I don't know what I know, about. that's the thing. Like, this incident isn't Philip before scandal, though. Um, it's not something okay. that he does. He, it is something okay. that he reacts to, and arguably he, he has a big reaction to it, and it arguably exacerbates the problem. Um, okay. Because he doesn't cover it up. He basically broadcasts it. Tells everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, I'm not hiding my family secrets. So we could maybe like give him like one ulala point for that. Yeah. But you'll just okay. have to take you'll just have to take my word for it that it's a big thing. I'll do a half a point then. Okay, I'm gonna give a full point because I know. But you can give a half point, that's fair enough. Um Yeah, because I don't know. Yeah. But consider yourself teased. <laughs> Yeah, no. But yeah, setting that aside, we've still got a yeah. very scandalous king who does some really yeah. despicable things uh, in the name of France. No bedroom scandal, not a whiff of a mistress. No, um, I like that. He stays chaste even nice. after Queen Joan dies. So loyal to her. Yeah, we actually haven't had a royal mistress since Louis the Sixth. That's like oh, two hundred wow. years ago. Oh wow! Feels like we should have had more, but I think so. Philip. Augustus or maybe Louis the Eighth had an illegitimate child, but that was like a one night stand situation. That wasn't like a like a, a mistress marriage? who like comes back to court. Yeah. Oh, and I guess Philip Augustus had a wife who wasn't really a wife, but that's mm. that's technicality. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, not not a lot of mistresses lately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's decide. Anything else we need to add? I think that's about it. But but let but the the Pope fight and the Templar fight. Worth a lot of points. They're good. Because that's yeah. a lot of, like, people wrongly accused of things. People getting yeah. tortured. Burnt to stake. Burnt to curses. Stake, oh, curses. God, everything. God's wrath. Somebody slaps the Pope in Philip's name. Yes. I love that. Naughty, naughty Pope! He slaps the Pope so hard, the Pope dies, him. like, a month later. Shock. Yeah, he, he literally never recovers. Okay. I think it's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty big. Let's see the context. So, Philip Augustus, okay. you weren't impressed by. I was impressed by. <laughs> so, like, you gave a 6.5, I gave, a, gave an 8.5. In reflecting on it, I think my score was a bit high, um, but I was mainly counteracting your score, which I thought was too low. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. let's discount that. That doesn't, that, let's discount that. Okay. Um, who else do we have here who had a lot of scandal? We've got. Um, it's been a while. It has been a while since we've had a scandalous person. Oh, we've got the excommunicated people. So we've got Robert II, who had a seven. 
and we've got uh, Philip the First, who had an eight. I think Philip the Fourth is like as bad as you can be without lusty stuff and excommunication. Although he basically yeah. does get excommunicated, like the Pope yeah, is like just... writing up the excommunication document yeah, when yeah. people barge it's into his home. It's about to be sent. Yeah, <laughs> like he'd about to, he was about to stamp it, and then he gets slapped. <laughs> what chow? And the stamp gets knocked out of his hand. It's pretty okay, good. Gonna... Like we, I know. So I'm gonna like slap all the like just the petty shiz he does with the Pope of like you know yeah. the burning and all that and sarcastic remarks. So it's like a few points in itself. It's like three or four points alone because I just love it. And then a few points for like the Templars because I love a bit of cursing and you know, burning. Mm-hmm. Just, oh. A point for the scandal that I'm not going to tell you about or half a point in your yeah, case. Yeah, I think 7.5. Okay. That sounded so unsure, you see. I like, think I'm going to give him a nine. I, I think I'm I'm always more generous in this one, but I think I'm going to I'm give usually him a nine. the more generous the La La one. Yeah. Come on, I'm usually the more generous one. No, you aren't. Looking back at the points, I don't think you are. Really? Yeah, it's my favorite We're either section. the same or I'm slightly above. You gave Charlemagne more than me in this, but that's about mm. it. Wow. Oh, I I'd... And Dagobert the Third for some reason that I can't remember. Oh, he was on Into the Poison one? Nope. Maybe it was his... Oh, he was Song, probably. Dagobert the Third. No, he started a civil no. war and then died. <laughs> Ah, that one. Oh, yeah, he got points that civil war. Okay. Yeah. That's, That's literally all he did. Well, that was pretty big starting a civil war. It got 0.5 points. <laughs> that was just your That's... point. <laughs> Is he the one who got his locks cut off? No, that was Childrick the third. Yeah. Okay. They all just blend together. Yeah, they all really it's blend been together. It's so long since we've done them. I don't remember most of them. But anyway, so that's a 7.5 and a 9. So that's a 16.5 for Ulala. Are we happy with that? Yes. Yeah, I think I'm happy with that. That's a I'm good. That. Ooh, that's a good. Ooh, I just saw the final score. But we have to do V on Throne first. Okay. The V on Throne. So his reign, uh, Philip the fourth reigned from the 5th of October 1285 to the 29th of November 1314. That is 44 years, one month, and 24 days, which gives him 8.2 points. And the children, I'll be brief because we've already described the children in Joan of Navarre's episode. Isabella, I'm going to assume. Yeah, so he has he has two daughters who die young, and and uh, other than that, he's got Louis the Tenth, uh, Philip Count of Poitiers, Charles Count of La Marche. Isabella, Queen of England, and then we've got Robert, who outlived his mother, so we counted him for her. But he uh, dies, yeah, but not he, yeah, yeah, he dies five years before his father, so not Robert, yeah. sadly. But yeah, three sons and a daughter, so that's four children. Four children, nice. I say that like it's a small amount, but you know, it's it's good, it's yeah. decent by modern standards, I guess. Um, so that's six point eight points for the children, which gives us a nice, a nice round fifteen for. The V on Thrones score. Hmm. And now the important diddle-ling. The diddle-little-ling. So I'm just looking, comparing the score before I tell you. It's a good score. Leave me in suspense. It's a good score. So he's gotten a score of 80.5. Oh. Nice. He's our new second place. He's 0.2 points below Charlemagne. 
Oh, damn, I was going to give more points just to get above him. So close. So he's beaten out our current uh, second place, uh, Philip Augustus, by 0.9 points. So the three of them really close up there at the top. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to find someone who beats Charlemagne. So with that being said, is he fascinating enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, to go through the Battle Royale Championship, and to be spared the guillotine? Yes. 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 Philip the Fair, Philip the Iron King, Philip the Pigeon. <laughs> Philip the good using it legal stuff. Yep, Philip the good looking, but not really according to his portrait. Philip the, are, I think he's wanted, but does he? You are spared from the guillotine. In my opinion, a pretty good contender for the final yeah. tournament based on this score. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. I really enjoyed this episode. I think this I know. It was very juicy and fun. It's one of my favorites so far. Oh that means like he's so got like the scandal say. of it, but then at the same time I also love how he's incredibly loyal to his wife. Like, yeah, it's always yeah. a big sticking point for you, isn't it? Um, Even well, I, I do love that whole scandalous thing of like you know mistresses and stuff, but it's it's nice to see that the loyalty, but him also still being scandalous enough to get a high mark. Yeah, and he and his his daughter is his favorite child, which also endears me to him nice. a little bit. He just thinks his son's a jerk, and I love her epithet too, the she wolf. Yeah, well, she's gonna. We're not we're not doing an episode, obviously, because she's the <laughs> yeah, English queen. Yeah. Uh, there is a Rex Factor episode on her yeah. that listeners can go listen to, but uh, she will come back. I also she... avoided that one because I was like, I don't want to. She will come back and anything. she will affect things in France going forward for quite a long time. I'll still have to wait a few episodes till I can actually listen to that episode. Of yeah. Factors, but uh, I avoid yeah. all things France. But yeah, let's just say she's still important. We're going to hear more from her. Nice. And we're going to hear from the children of Philip IV and the scandals scandal, that scandal. they get involved in. Uh, shenanigans. Yeah. I have to say it's one of my favorite words, shenanigans. It's just a shenanigans is a great word. It's very late here, so I'm going to go to yeah. bed, Debye's. Yes, go to bed. So I can wake up at 6 I'm going to have breakfast. I'll maybe wake up at 6.30. I'll be nice to myself. I'll be kind. Nice. Okay. Okay. See ya. You haven't signed off. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm so tired. So that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me.
a goodbye from me. You're not doing Stay Off Horses still. And I just forget. You just hate it. Stay Off Horses. It's okay. You know, just don't go hunting. <laughs> we can alternate. That's the main it's thing. fine. We can, we, can, we can change it up, whatever we want. Yeah. <laughs> just whatever happened that episode will influence the ending that we say. Yeah. So this one, don't go hunting. You will get a stroke and die because of a curse. You will get chlamydia and die. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't get a curse and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. 